Well, good morning, friends. It's been quite some time since uh, since we've been together for a devotion. Uh, of course, I don't know how many of you actually know, you know, my story and what was going on, but uh, the reason that I have not been here the last couple of weeks with you is because my my grandmother passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, because I'm originally from Southern California, I had to make arrangements to. Uh, get out there to be a part of uh, her funeral arrangements and and all of that, and it was all all a very good thing for me and my family to be together and to be able to do that. But that made it so that I was not able to be with you for the last couple Tuesdays. But I'm glad to be here with you uh, today. And I think what we're going to do today is something um, maybe a. I think we'll start fresh with something brand new in the new year. And uh, what I want to look at is the I am statements of Jesus, those statements that are, of course, famous because they are Jesus claiming to be uh, the Messiah. They are Jesus clearly claiming to be uh, the anointed one, even claiming a yes, indeed, to be divine, because, of course, I am is the title that God gives himself way back in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses when Moses asks, who should I tell the people of Israel has sent me? And Yahweh or God says, I am who I am. Uh, it's where we get the phrase. It's, it's literally Yahweh. And Jesus in John's gospel uh, describes himself with this title uh, seven different times, but he connects it to a certain aspect of life that I think is very important for our understanding of who Jesus is and why we are so desperate for him. So, so with that, let's go ahead and read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 51. It reads like this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And we'll stop there, even though what Jesus will go on to say is, uh, in my mind, clearly very related to uh, communion and the importance of uh, eating and drinking in our relationship to God. That's for another time. Uh, today, we're just going to focus on this 
saying, this, this title, The Bread of Life, and what it's really getting to. Uh, it seems that, that no matter where we look in the world, of course, uh, we never quite find what we're looking for. You know, of course, there's the famous uh, Stone song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. There's U2's song, uh, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. You, you know the feeling. We all have that. Um, nevertheless, it doesn't stop us from trying to find meaning and significance and satisfaction in the things of the world. Um, of course, uh, you know, when it most a lot of people try and find satisfaction in things and wealth and money. Uh, there's that famous quote from John Rockefeller when he was asked one time how much money is enough, and he responded, just a little more. Uh, and then, of course, there's the opposite side where you have people that have gotten rich, uh, say like Jim Carrey in a graduation speech a while back, who said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of, so they will know it's not the answer. And so some may realize that, that money's not going to do it for you. And so they try and find satisfaction in their achievements. I think uh, I myself am prone to, to wanting that, I, to find deeper meaning in what I've achieved. Uh, so you work harder and harder to show yourself as accomplished and important <laughs> and significant. But again, if you listen to the testimonies of even the most accomplished people among us, there still isn't a satisfaction behind it. Uh, there's, I, I, I'll never forget seeing Tom Brady in an interview on 60 Minutes, this is a while back, um, talking about, you know, how even after winning all these Super Bowls, he's still not satisfied. He still doesn't feel satisfaction. Indeed, he's 42, and I, from all uh, indications, I think he's coming back next year because he, he's not done. He's not satisfied, even though he's got six Super Bowl rings and he's been MVP three times. In, uh, in the interview on 60 Minutes, he says this, I reached my goal, my dream, my life, and all I can think is, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, is, this, isn't, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And on and on we go. I mean, you know, everything, even food, even food, as much as we think it will satisfy the craving, it's only temporal. It doesn't last for long. I, I just got to have In-N-Out Burger again. And if you know me, you know how much I boast about the glory that is In-N-Out Burger. But the reality is, you know, a couple hours later, I'm hungry again. It doesn't do the trick. Uh, it doesn't satisfy forever. So, uh, and that's really kind of where the crowds are at that Jesus is talking to today. They're hungry. Uh, they, they had just been the recipients of Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has filled their hunger. They all ate to their feel, and now, no longer satisfied, they're asking him for more. Their needs have still not been met, and it is here at this moment uh, when men are begging for satisfaction that Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them and us that our truest needs are only actually met in right relationship with him. So how does Christ alone meet our real deep down needs? Well, first of all, what's probably pretty clear from uh, the fact that he refers to himself by the I am is he, he meets our need for a real, true God. And here's the facts, folks. We all need a real, true God or else we'll make him up. That's why Martin Luther said in his large catechism about the first commandment, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, quote, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. 
Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. Point is, it's impossible for us to live without a God. We might not think of it as a God, but we treat things like they are divine, like they have that kind of significance. Uh, the fact is, we can't stop ourselves from worshiping. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts are our idol factories. So, so then the question is not whether we will worship, it is rather who or what we will worship. And what Jesus tells us here is that he is meant to be the object of our worship. Again, go back to the first verse of the passage. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That statement, although maybe not obvious to us, would have been an absolutely clear declaration to the people who were listening to him as good Jewish folks, that he indeed is claiming to be divine. He's saying here, I am the source. And therefore, I am the only one that can truly satisfy what your soul, what your deepest longing really is. St. Augustine is famous for saying, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O Lord. And yet, Jesus shows himself not to be a God who stands away from us, but comes to us. He says in verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Indeed, he does. The Son of God breathes our air, suffers our sins, deals with our temptations, and feels pain just the way we do. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. So Jesus meets our need for a true, real, tangible uh, God. Also, Jesus meets our need for a real, true Savior, because we also need that in order to have a relationship to God. Uh, we're, we need a God to worship. He says, all right, that's me. But we also need to be saved. We also recognize that we're not right. There's something broken, bent. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. So, so we look to all sorts of things to be functional saviors. For us, for, for many, it might be a spouse or, or money or power or fame, but, but really it can be anything. And what Jesus tells us in this passage is that, again, he alone is qualified to meet that need for us. He says here in the text, he will do this, he will accomplish this by doing his Father's will. Indeed, that's, that's exactly what he did, and that's what each human being desperately needed. A person that, for the first time in human history, actually did all the Father's will without sinning even one time. And why did we need it? Because you and I are sinners, and by, by definition, have not done the will of God ourselves. Because we've been bent in the wrong direction, we need someone to fulfill the law and the prophets for us. And of course, uh, the only way that we can avoid the wrath that we so deserve is if someone takes that for us. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Why do we need it fulfilled? So that he can be our perfect atonement. So we read in the last verse in our passage that Jesus will, quote, give up his flesh for us. And indeed, that is where the atonement takes place. That is how he uh, accomplishes all that needs to be done to be our Savior. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 
says famously, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There on the cross, he satisfies the righteous requirement for perfect justice so that we don't have to. But of course, the good news that's proclaimed in this passage, it's alluded to in this passage, is that he is not a dead savior, but he is alive. He is, after all, the living bread. He is the one who defeated death by rising from the grave three days later, proclaiming his victory for us, and therefore declaring to all who believe their sins are forgiven, washed clean, and thus saved. And this means that he satisfies our need for true, everlasting life. Jesus alone gives eternal life. The fact is, you and I and everybody else in this world really can't fathom non-existence. It's just impossible. And the reason that is because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, human beings. So we look over and over and over again for some way in this world to give ourselves eternal life, everlasting life. The big you know, thing right now in many parts of Silicon Valley is this idea of the singularity, you know, that through the combination of us having robotic parts and, and our flesh together, we can go on forever and ever and ever. But this is nothing new. Everybody's always looked for the fountain of youth, and it's never worked before. It's our destiny. We're going to die because we are fallen creatures. And so the good news for us is that Jesus promises he can deliver on the need for eternal life. Listen to this good news in verse 40 again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear that? Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is doing it. Eternal life is not merely a hope that is offered. It is a guarantee that he promises here. Listen, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I should lose nothing, no things, no people, no persons. It's not possible. None of those who are mine will be lost, can be lost, I will bring you to eternal life, Christian. It's a guarantee. Take it to the bank. I talked to so many Christians that live without assurance that on the final day they'll make it to heaven. I've, I've been at the deathbeds of people that have been faithful believers for years that still quake in their shoes about the possibility of standing before God. People will say things like, I hope I'm ready. I hope that I'm really truly forgiven, or even worse, I hope I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad. But folks, it couldn't be any clearer. Jesus promises that those who simply believe, trust, have nothing to fear at all. You can rest. He is faithful even when we're faithless. You can rest. You who have eaten and tasted of the bread of life at the Lord's Supper, should know that that's not food that spoils or goes rotten. That bread is what sustains you so that you will one day never hunger again. And why does Jesus do this? Well, he does all this purely out of grace, even in spite of us. It's independent of us. Listen to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, who's doing the verbs? 
How is it that we learn to come to Jesus for this satisfaction we need? Because the Father gives us to him. Verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word for draws there in Greek is a word used to describe dragging or pulling someone. In the ancient Greek text, that word draw was used to describe someone pulling up water from a well. I mean, the water could not be more passive. It has no things to do with being drawn up. It is being brought up by the work of another. Why is that good news? Because this means that our true needs are not given to us based on our desire, our effort, our ability, but rather our needs are given to us in spite of us, sheerly by his grace and mercy to us. So in closing, I, I can't help but think about all of this. Uh, when I think about all of this, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis and the way he describes his conversion he says, quote, sensing God's relentless, this is actually John Stott writing about C.S. Lewis's description. He says, sensing God's relentless pursuit of him, he likens God to the great angler playing his fish, to a cat chasing a mouse, to a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, and finally to the, to the divine chess player, maneuvering him into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he concedes checkmate. The bread of life will have those that he draws. He, it's, it's, not, it's not debatable, and he's not going to lose a single one of you. So you can rest. You can have assurance because he is enough. He satisfies all of our needs in the throne room, in the courtroom of heaven, and therefore is our true satisfaction. All right, gang. Good to be here with you again today. God bless you all. Have a great week. I hope you are encouraged and you are satisfied in him. Talk to you then. Talk to you next week. Bye.